0: We've had an amazing disservice by not having a leader previously in the White House who had a one nation strategy where we had these little fiefdoms across the country where people were trying to do the best they could.
1: Hi, and from the Griot, I'm your co-host, Dr. Christina Greer.
0: And today we have a special guest co-host. Hi, I'm Afia Atimenta, Executive Director of Community Voices Heard, and you're listening to What's In It For Us.
1: So I'm super excited to have Athea here with me today. We're going to talk about three major things. Athea, first of all, Biden's stimulus. I don't know if it's really enough to actually help Black families. I know $1.9 trillion seems like a lot, but I'm not sure if it really is. Two, these kids are still not in school. And I know you have thoughts on that because you have two kids. Still at home. And three, this Johnson Johnson COVID vaccine that's just come out to market, some folks have some thoughts. It's a one-shot deal, so obviously people are excited, but we're not sure if it's as robust as the Moderna and Pfizer. What say you?
0: Well, let me go ahead and go in the Biden stimulus. I'm going to say that it is definitely not enough for Black families. Still waiting for the $2,000 a month. We know we need a lot more money for care. We know we need money for housing, jobs, Black-owned businesses that, by and large, have been rendered unemployed by this. So it's Absolutely not enough. Children still in school. For all the parents, I am a mom of two children and it is killing me. We love them, but did we really know we would have to spend all this time with them while we were working? I didn't. So I'm dying inside. What you're seeing is just the shell of me that smiles and it gets excited when I get to be on podcasts with people like Dr. Greer. But these kids gotta go to school. (laughs) Johnson & Johnson COVID vaccine. While I'm happy that it's one shot, a little nervous, wanna know more about the trials. And listen, I know different people have different experiences. And in New York, I'm just hoping that someone gets the folks together so we can figure out a way to do this vaccine in a meaningful, intentional, and equitable way. So Johnson & Johnson can help with that maybe gets us to where we need to be.
1: So as always, we'll debate, discuss, and try and figure out what's in it for us. So Afia, on my timeline this week is the WNBA. So we saw their power during the Georgia runoff elections when the Atlanta Dream essentially flexed on one of their co-owners, Kelly Loeffler, who was running for Senate in Georgia. And she has since sold her ownership of the Atlanta Dream and now run Renee Montgomery, a former player of the WNBA, has a stake in the organization as of Friday. So Happy Black History Month and Happy Women's History Month. So Montgomery is the first former player to be both an owner and an executive in a WNBA franchise. And since the the former owner of the team, Kelly Loeffler, was outspoken against the Black Lives Matter movement and outspoken against the WNBA's activist work. In her position of power, the Dream Players have not only continued their social justice work; they've spoken out against Loeffler. They started a campaign encouraging Georgians to vote. They helped her opponent Raphael Warnock win his Democratic seat in Georgia. So this is a great day for women. This is a great day for Black folks. This is a great day for Black Women's History Month, which I guess is February March. I'm rolling them all into one. <laughs> what do you? <laughs> to say about the WNBA?
0: So I am super excited. I feel like we really just need as a nation to put some respect on their name. Mm-hmm. The women in the WNBA have been leading the way as far as movement, activism, and as an organizer it really moves my heart. Folks organized, took over, they have unseated a hostile owner and really started to really move forward with this team in a way with someone who I hope will aligns with the values and the inspiration that these women in the WNBA play, the vast majority of whom are Black women. So I'm here for I hope they teach a class to some of their male counterparts. And I just really think it's inspirational. And as the mom of two daughters, I'm so excited to see it. So many of these women in the WNBA are leaders in civic life as well as in sports and entertainment. So I'm here for it.
1: I really wanted you on this week to talk about this organizing because you've been an organizer for, I mean, I know you look like you're 16, but you've been an organizer for a minute. And we've seen the WNBA's players are 65% Black. So in 2016, the Minnesota Lynx players held a press conference. They wore Black shirts with the phrase, change starts with us, justice and accountability. And that was in response to the killings of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile by police officers. We saw members of the New York Liberty and the Phoenix Mercury and the Indiana Fever. They also followed suit, which led their players. Players and organizations with being fined for violating uniform rules. And so WNBA rescinded the fines following the backlash, but these women still spoke out and still continue to organize. Even in 2020, they dedicated their season to Brianna Taylor and the Say Her Name movement, which raised awareness for Black female victims of police violence. So you mentioned something that I've been talking about. It's like, I wish this would spread a little more robustly to their male counterparts because we see certain players in the NBA stand out and speak up, but by and large, it's seems to be women in sports that are leading the charge, even soccer players who aren't even (laughs) Black women who are just like, no, let's actually move the needle forward since we actually have the power to do so. But I wish more in the NFL, the NBA, and major leagues, the MLB would even do so.
0: What well, we've seen this leadership from women who, if we're honest, have been organizing in a host of areas. They're grossly underpaid as to their male counterparts. It's not just the WNBA, the MLB, the Women's Soccer League. I remember when they were wearing the shirts for the jerseys for Audre Lorde and others who were really saying that they wanted to, one, take a step on this issue, spread it through their members, the other team members. And it's just been a beautiful moment. So I think it really stands in contrast where we know we have some of their male counterparts in the sports and entertainment world who have taken some steps, but many haven't Put it on the line, I think, as women in the WNBA have, again, in the midst of being paid not even half as much of their male counterparts in the NBA and making this understandable for folks, given that so many are Black women saying that they are on the front lines of this and wanting to be in solidarity with other folks who are organizing. It's been beautiful and I'm excited by it. And I think it really will be um, hopefully pivotal in history when we think back to folks like Muhammad Ali and others and the steps that they took and the sacrifices they make. I'm hoping that these women in the WNBA are remembered in the same light.
1: Yeah, well, you make two really important points. One, the salary piece. In the WNBA, the best stars make around $215,000 per season, and that's less than some of the lowest paid NBA players to ride the bench and never Ever see one minute of playtime, which I think is absolutely insane. And two, the sacrifice that you talk about with someone like Muhammad Ali, we have Maya Moore, possibly one of the greatest WNBA players right now. She's currently sitting out for her second straight season, choosing to focus on criminal justice reform. And she's already helped one wrongfully convicted man overturn a 50 year prison sentence. So, this level of sacrifice that you talk about, we're seeing in real time with women in the NBA. And it's just so hard to wrap my mind around the fact that they're willing to sacrifice their careers but also their careers are based on their love of the game because they're surely not being
0: compensated financially for their hard work and the wear and tear on their bodies. No, 100%. And for all players, they have a finite time to be able to do something as physically draining as basketball. And so for these players to say, I'm going to put that on the side, my deep love of this game, my belief in sports and particularly the role models of women and understanding that at the end of the day, there are Black women in this world and those are the communities they're going to return to. And so the idea of setting forward a joint vision of what liberation and dignity for black people to look like being on the forefront, as opposed to the financial gain, although not nearly as much as it should be when compared to their male counterparts, is something that I find deeply moving. And then I'll say a lot of these women are also deeply connected to community-based organizing in their respective communities. They're not trying to be leaders per se. They see themselves as accountable to community. They see this as part of building a movement and doing with not nearly as much media support and flat as others get, put it all on the line. So it's just a testament, I would say, to what we know that is the grace and amazingness of Black women across this nation. Well,
1: it's really interesting because I feel like there are a lot of parallels with the work that you do with Community Voices Heard and some of the organizing that these women are doing. You're doing it with not the same level of resources as certain organizations, not the same level of fanfare. Anytime a Black woman is organizing other Black women, we know that the attention level from some of the big money crowd just isn't there in the same ways. Tell us just a little bit more about some of the organizing that you have done and that you're doing right now to sort of uplift Black women in similar ways that the WNBA is doing as well.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, right now, Community Voices Heard is really focused on moving from this performance that we're hearing on here about Black women, and it's the time for Black women that's usually devoid of any real work behind it, where we're organizing Black women across our state and others, asking them crazy questions like, what issues matter most to you, and hoping to build connective tissues that we can take action together, whether it's political action together and making sure that women are represented at all levels of elected office, action in our respective communities when we talk about schools being closed and what that means, but also showing up for each other and with relationship building and support in these hellified times. So I'm excited that we're able to be in relationship with folks and have, frankly, partners and role models like some of these women in the WNBA who are showing that it's not effortless, that there's real sacrifices to be made but when we think about this larger vision for what could be
1: possible for our
0: communities as well.
1: As an organizer, you stand on the shoulders of so many Black women who have done so much in this country to say nothing of other nations. I'm just focusing on Black women in this country. And so during Women's History Month, on the heels of Black History Month, and I'm celebrating both of them in conjunction, but thinking about someone like Althea Gibson breaking through the color barrier in tennis just three years after Jackie Robinson did the same in baseball. She made history in the 1950s as the first African-American woman to compete in the U.S. National Championships, which is like the precursor to the U.S. Open. And without Althea Gibson, there would be no Serena, Venus and Serena. There would be no Naomi Osaka, who's won the highest paid female African in the world right now. I'm thinking about Wilma Rudolph, who we learned about in elementary school, the track and field star, who won three gold medals at the 1960 Summer Olympics in Rome. And she returned home a champion and used her platform to advocate for integration. So is there anyone that you're thinking about in this hybrid, I'm going to call February and March, Black Women's Month? Feb March. <laughs> <laughs> right now that's inspiring you?
0: Yeah, there are a couple women. So I appreciate you lifting up Althea Gibson. You know, I live in the village of Harlem and Althea is a Harlem native. I'm thinking deeply about Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker, who I know you're doing research on. I just think about strength of those women who have done the non-sexy but essential work of building community, of talking to people, of getting folks to take collective action together, sometimes dangerous collective action, being unapologetic about demanding dignity. When we're thinking of this kind of larger framework of the work of women like Ense Ufad and Stacey Abrams and Latasha and so many others, you go back in time to the work that Fannie Lou Hamer and others were doing around, right, the Mississippi Freedom Democrats part, right? Like all this infrastructure setting for 50 and 60 years later for us to still be moving forward this basic point as organizers, we say recognition action for dignity. So I am deeply inspired and humbled when I think about the conditions in which they had to organize and saddened, but still move forward to think about the conditions that we're still forced to organize in this day. But at the same time, feeling blessed to be in a space and relationship with dope sisters like yourself and so many others who are continuing this idea that we deserve dignity in this world and we go fight for
1: Well, listen, I appreciate you being here. I cannot wait for us to discuss some hot topics. So for the months of February and March, it's my Black Women's History Month. And for our listeners out there, this entire month of March, I'm having nothing but dope Black women as my co-host. And so I'm so thankful that Afia got us started. And as always, we will continue to think about what's in it for us. Okay, so Afia, this stimulus package, as you've mentioned, you lead Community Voices Heard, an organization that helps mobilize and organize primarily women of color. But Joe Biden's put together this stimulus that lots of folks are clutching their pearls. It's one point nine trillion dollars of COVID relief. But my question is, is it really enough? So the House Democrats obviously are the ones who put it together because the Republicans are happy to just let us all starve in the streets. (laughs) But it's direct aid to small businesses. It's a fourteen hundred dollar direct check to Americans making less than seventy five thousand dollars annually. It's an increase in the child tax credit. It's direct funding to state and local governments, which can get real loosey goosey. It's funding for schools and it's more money for vaccine distribution, where I got some thoughts on that when I think about our good friend Lori Lightfoot in Chicago giving that money to police officers. But there's a group of Senate Republicans and they pitched a counter offer of six hundred billion that they felt was a more targeted approach. And they met the president and we settled on one point nine trillion. And so lots of Republicans are saying, well, we don't have the money. That's a lie. We always have the money if we needed to go to war tomorrow, they'd find it. we find the money. we find $91 trillion in about 20 minutes. So I still feel like this $1.9 trillion isn't necessarily enough because I don't know if it'll really trickle down to the families that you actually work with on a daily basis. And that's why I really wanted you to come on today because you actually see how this money works in action. Some of us are a little more removed from the real granular level of if this $1,400 check doesn't come in soon we will have no place to sleep. We will have nothing to eat. So are you inspired that it's $1.9 trillion? Do you think that it'll actually do what it needs to do, especially from what you're seeing in New York and talking to your counterparts and colleagues in other parts of the country?
0: I'd say it's a start. It feels stimuli. I'm not going to lie to you. Some of the issues that we deal with most are the issues that are facing so many people during this hard time. Access to affordable housing. We talked about care and access to education, getting folks back to family sustaining jobs. So we just look at those few areas for so many people, but particularly for our membership who are primarily working class, low-income folks. This rent crisis is real. The first of the month comes every month. We've had 12 of them. Ooh, it comes so fast. comes quick. I'm like, my, my, is it March 1st already? comes quick. And you know, you can't pay your landlord with a theory about maybe I'll get this check, maybe I won't. The landlord wants Mm -hmm. it, right? And so even though Biden has done this, we'd say not nearly robust or strong enough eviction and foreclosure moratorium, that debt is still accumulating. So God willing, by the summertime or at the very least 2022, we're clearing this horror that is COVID, folks are still going to have 13, 16, 18 months of back rent outstanding. And if you ain't had it before, you're not going to automatically get it unless lottery is happening all over the place. So it's a huge burden on families. This as a one-off is not going to be nearly enough to make families whole. In fact, people will be starting from a place of debt. As a person who will be paying Sally Mae probably until I'm in the ground, this idea of not canceling student debt, I think is a real place that it's just not enough for Black people. So many of us have outside student debt from college. This could be a real opportunity to course correct jobs. You mentioned about some of the money going for small-owned businesses. Black-owned businesses have been decimated by COVID. We know that they didn't get equal access to PPP that first round, so it's not enough. Well, you can think,
1: Tom, Brady for that, Afia. Mm-hmm. He
0: got his. He got his money. And the village called Harlem. We're still waiting for folks up and down 125th Street to get theirs. And like on so many Dr. Martin Luther King boulevards across this nation, small black and brown businesses are still waiting for theirs. So it can't be a one-off. We need it going on and on. And I would just say that, listen, this is the worst pandemic this whole world has seen since, what, 1913? We need a type of support system for people that meets the urgency of this time. It has to be ongoing. It has to allow us to get to our better angels, not just put people where they're not sleeping on the street, let's put them in a better place. Let's use this as an opportunity to dream big, to do the things that we know government could do, which is actually support people. And I think if we're using that as a benchmark, which I would say, and our members would say, this falls below the mark.
1: Well, it's interesting because I think that's like the big debate we're having right now about the train has been so far off the track, for the past four years. And now we have a global pandemic that has reached our shores in ways that, because of inadequate and inept leadership, it is really decimating so many different types of communities. But do we just put the train back on track because it's an emergency and we just need to move forward? Or is this the time to really reimagine what our society could look like? Can we reimagine work? Can we reimagine how we allocate resources to black and brown businesses? Shout out to Ayana Presley, black woman from Massachusetts. But she's like, hey, listen, let's start canceling some of the school debt because we really can't get back on track as a society if people are lugging around a few hundred thousand dollars. That's right. Everywhere they go. And we know that post-COVID, just as you mentioned, folks are going to be lugging around not just student debt, but possibly thirty to $50,000 in back rent if there's no rent forgiveness. So we have to pass legislation to forgive that. I think I'm just frustrated because when you look at the numbers of the allocations, $246 billion goes to additional jobless assistance. And that bill provides money to extend jobless benefits until the end of August. I'm like, the end of August? is going to come real fast, just like the first of the month comes real fast. So these numbers seem large, $120 billion to support parents, $70 billion money for COVID tests and vaccines, is that COVID awareness too? We know that we have to build up a national campaign to really help not just administer the vaccine, but educate people about the vaccine. School reopenings 170 billion, but that's buying masks and cleaning supplies. Some of these schools are so antiquated, all the masks in the world are going to protect kids. Yeah. So what are we even doing with this money? And I think, as you say, it's stimulate. It's definitely a start. My fear is that it sounds like a lot of money, but for what needs to be done, it's not a lot of
0: Dr. Greer, you are absolutely correct. And especially when you raise the point about what goes out to each of the states and lifted up the example of Mayor Lightfoot giving so much of that money to the Chicago Police Department, there's really no guidance on where this should go and how it should be, we would say, designated to individuals and the people who need it most, as opposed to institutions. There's so many layers of this. But when you, I think, start to peel back the onion, you get to see that this money, while big ticker price of $1.9 trillion sounds a lot, but it's not. And so this has to be ongoing. There has to be a targeted infrastructure to to make sure that Black communities and Latinx communities and those who've been hardest hit by the pandemic receive the aid that so desperately need first. We know that across this nation, vaccine dissemination has been less than equitable, if I'm going to say it nicely. <laughs> and we're missing huge opportunities to that point of imagining and creating a bigger, bolder vision to make this country better than how we got it, to really move towards our greater angels. I would say that that massive action of voting this new administration, it wasn't just to tinker around the edges. We would say that it was for big, bold ideas is an opportunity for dignity, for sustainability. Why wouldn't we have making sure that we're employing people with family sustaining wages to making sure that they're going door to door and doing education about the vaccine and helping to do rollouts in underserved communities like public housing developments, low income areas. These are things that are within our grasp, but sadly, Mm -hmm. we lack the leadership and some leaders lack, I'd say, the spinal fortitude to make it happen at this time.
1: And even the imagination. I feel like we could have a 21st century WPA, which is the Works Progress Administration for Those of you who don't know, and that's where we employed artists. You work with a lot of women in housing projects. We can employ those women because they are trusted educators within their own community. We can employ them about not just telling people to take the vaccine, just vaccine education so people can make an informed decision. We could be doing so much more with the resources we have, especially with people who want to be at work and who are quite honestly trapped at home with their kids. Which brings us to the second segment. These kids still ain't in school. Now, some folks, (laughs) I'm not gonna say who, but some folks are definitely like, listen. We're reaching a full year of students being either fully at home or some sort of hybrid. They've gone to school. There's been an outbreak. Now they're back home. Or some schools have done a pretty good job at one week on, one week off. But there's a neurologist, Dr. Chad DeMongu, I think his name is. And he essentially argues children need to go back to the classroom to fully foster a developing brain. That is his analysis. We're basically raising a generation of children who are dealing in a global pandemic. They've got anxiety. They've got depression. We don't know how that's going to last throughout their childhood and into adulthood. Some are struggling. Some are just going to have knowledge gaps. I chuckle, but 30 years from now, we're going to be talking to someone and they just won't know long division. Because it's like, I miss... (laughs) That was a COVID year. These gaps in knowledge, for a lot of kids, it's like a gap year. So it's like, well, my mama says, and it's like, wait, that's not a history book. (laughs) So what needs to be done to get kids back in school? And then also I do want to get your opinion though because there are some Black parents who are just like my kids are doing better at home with me and even though it's hard, not having to deal with racism in the classroom and in the school, not having to deal with their teacher in the same way, like being on Zoom is a little different than seeing her every day and hearing those like snide comments has been a boon for certain children's confidence and how they're able to actually just succeed in an environment. So what 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 is to be done? First things first. Ooh, vast majority of kids, I think parents would argue, need to have their butts back in school. At least out the house. Even just for the social element. Yeah.
0: So I would say to your imagination, imagination and some grit is what we're missing, I think, in this debate on a federal level. So listen, these kids got to get back to school. There has to be some structured learning. I'll say it. I'm a parent of two. At this point, my eldest is teaching virtual school like it's an app. I see her swiping. One screen is on math. The other screen is on, you know, Arthur. <laughs> so it's extremely difficult. And if we're honest, since we're celebrating February, March, Feb, March, the burden disproportionately falls on women and particularly black women. So I'm concerned as a parent, what does that gap look like later? And if we're honest, we know that once things are quote unquote back to normal, it's going to be folks who have a lot more money, who have the money to pay for the private tutors to try and shrink that gap, who are doing those special couple thousand dollar camps so that they're able to do what's needed or have the counseling to deal with what you raise extremely serious, the trauma and the grief and the concern around COVID. We've had an amazing disservice by not having a leader previously in the White House who had a one nation strategy where we had these little fiefdoms across the country where people were trying to do the best they could. And I think there has to be grace and space that folks are just going to have different experiences. I'm privileged in that because of what's going on in COVID as an organizer, I'm working remotely. So even though it's breaking my soul, I have a little more time to both Zoom while trying to be the IT engineer, backup teacher, and all the things that come with working through COVID while teaching kids. But the vast majority of my membership are essential workers. They are unable to deal with trying to teach at the same time while they're either at the grocery stores. And if we're honest, COVID has hit Black communities so much harder, where there are a lot of people who have a real fear. fear that's based on logic because of how Black people have been treated historically and currently about that their school systems may not be safe to send their kids back to. The air filters, a lot of these schools are old buildings. As a nation we haven't invested in the infrastructure nationally, but particularly in our schools. So they're concerned about sending their kids back and what that means. We've had members where whole sections of families, moms, aunts, sisters, nephews have all died. So in that context, sending your kid in the midst of a couple hundred other people is extremely terrifying fine.
1: To say nothing of the grief and the trauma that you're dealing with that you just lost family members, plural, let alone one family member.
0: 100%. In certain schools, they've lost teachers and administrators. So when I mean imagination and grit, there's got to be an understanding that we have to put some money on it. A lot of money. Money that makes you uncomfortable put another zero on it. And that this should be a national time where we're going to work, do learning that's not just based on reading, writing, and arithmetic, but deals with trauma. And how do we deal with that? How do we move forward? That gives people space to get back to grade levels, knowing that dealt with so much personally, things that we'll never know during that time. And also I'd say space for teachers and school administrators who have tried their absolute best to put lesson plans together and figure things out while they're also trying to juggle. I had a moment with one of my kids' teachers where I noticed that she was similarly trying to hide and bribe a child that she had in her home while teaching so many. So all of us have been stretched to levels that I don't think the Lord meant for us to stretch for too long. (laughs) And we need some time and grace to come out of it.
1: We can do it, but the duration question is real. The underlying statement that I hear is that also there's this inequity that existed and you see it with the organizing work that you've always done. But the growing inequity is what's really concerning. We're seeing it with the deaths of family members. We're seeing the deaths of administrators and teachers. We're seeing it with some schools don't have. your troubleshooting on the laptop because you have multiple laptops. Some students don't have a single iPad or a single laptop or broadband. They're going outside of McDonald's or outside of certain office buildings just to try and catch a signal. So even the work from home, Zoom school from home is so different for so many families. How do you explain losing a teacher to a child? Because we know some schools have lost quite a few teachers. How do you tell a child it's not their fault? Because we're all going through this collectively, but individually. So all of a sudden, you're not just mom with a job, a real job, actually. You're also a counselor and an IT tech. And all of a sudden, you better know some sort of long division and remember how to conjugate verbs and sentences, depending on what grade your kids are in. And you're still working from home and you're trying to hold it all together. So I think that's the piece that I'm really struggling with parents who are simultaneously dealing with being asked to be multiple individuals whilst also doing a job
0: for other individuals. It's a burden that is too much that's gone on for too long. I'm concerned about all those things you raised, but I'm also concerned about the long-term ramifications of how this is dealt with. We know that Black children are held to different standards. In many white communities, a child who's acting out or having a hard time socializing when we're back because of all that's happened, they'll be understood and given counseling and space. Whereas it for Black children particularly, you can't even say boys, Black girls and boys who are more likely to get suspension, more likely to be targeted and called a discipline problem. So there's no trauma-informed learning and space for care. We talked about the gap that's going to be widened. There's going to be issues clearly of race and class about who gets that support. And then when we think about the brain drain or the women who are having to leave the workforce, mostly, again, disproportionately Black women, because we can't hold that stretch. They actually can't be the IT specialist, the counselor, the mathematician while working and while trying to do all types of different things. And many parents, so it's not just women, but disproportionately that burden has fallen on women and it's disproportionately harmed Black women. Which harms our earning potential. When we're trying to come back into a job force that is savagely unequal, how do we come back? Is there grace to come back into a job force when yet I had to leave because I'm the primary provider of my children? Or we're talking as parents, but I know care is not just about children. I have colleagues and so many members, and I know it affects people across this nation, particularly Black women who are care providers for parents or elderly people in their family. So, I go back to the idea of it's going to take some imagination, grit, and determination to move forward as a nation. But most importantly, when we think about how to deal with issues of education and how folks are going to come back on board, hopefully. If I'm honest, the organizer, I mean, we're going to have to do some actions against some of these departments of education who are at fault, who should have known better. A lot of kids and families are being penalized for not showing up virtually to school when they don't have the laptops to do so or they don't have the Wi-Fi to be able to connect. So there are a lot of things systemically where our children have been set up not to succeed. And instead of there being contrition and folks trying to figure out to give space for our children to succeed, our kids are being punished for not having the tools that the infrastructure should have provided in the first place.
1: And so one of the ways that we can try and dig our way out of this before it calcifies even worse is through a vaccine. And so this new Johnson and Johnson vaccine that's come out. So we know that people who have gotten the shot have gotten Moderna or Pfizer. And anytime something new comes out, we're going to look at it a little sideways because this is also something that is so new. This is basically the one year anniversary for a lot of folks where this time last year was maybe the last time you saw a friend or really went out and had drinks at a restaurant or did some traveled maybe because by the the second week of March if you were paying attention you had your behind at home So March 2nd someone sent me a picture today we were at a bar chilling I was in DC for a meeting it was lovely but we've got this new vaccine and so the hope is that folks will take this Johnson and Johnson vaccine because it's a one shot. As opposed to Moderna and Pfizer, where you take your first shot, you've got to wait, I believe, three to four weeks, and then you go back and take the second shot. So the women you work with and organize with, are they feeling hopeful or excited about the vaccine? Is there an education awareness campaign going on to try and get more working class communities, people in housing projects, using their thought leaders to actually push forward an agenda of education about the vaccine? Or is it still something that people are pretty skeptical about?
0: There is still some skepticism, right, amongst our members or their family members of like, what is this? There's not a lot of conversation. You know, I think of some of my members like, well, they try this on first. Let's wait a little while and see how it works for folks. And of course, that's normal given the history of how Black people have been treated by the medical society in this nation. So I think there's some honest skepticism and again, a lapse in government stepping in and giving support to community-based organizations like Community Voices Heard and so many across this country to do a little of that teaching on vaccines, to answer some of those honest questions that rightfully come up to help put people at ease and to work with communities to have a solid plan to make sure that the dissemination of this vaccine is equitable. Again, we hear a lot of performance and lip service that they want to make sure that Black communities and brown communities get the vaccine, but we see across this nation that it's high-income white communities that are first getting this vaccine, driving into the lower income and Black and brown neighborhoods to get it. I've never seen this many white people from Westchester coming into the Bronx when there's not a Yankees game, but what they are doing at Yankees. Stadium is disseminating the vaccine. So there's got to be some real action about what an equitable distribution of the vaccine is while we're doing that education by trusted community leaders to talk through concerns that are justified on the vaccine and what it means for them.
1: Yeah, I think that's what's so key. These concerns are justified. Yes, we do have some conspiracy theorists in our community. (laughs) And I think that's just real. But I think we also have real reasons to not trust the government. And I think that for some of the research I've done, it seems like folks were just beginning to trust Moderna and Pfizer, which is great. But now that there's a new vaccine, it's like, well, okay, I'll take Moderna or Pfizer, but I won't be taking Johnson & Johnson. It's like, no, no, no. Right. And they're like, who's this new man, Johnson? The doctors have said it's new. Leanna Wen, medical analyst and former Baltimore Public Health Commissioner, her big concern was that people think that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is labeled as inferior vaccine. And she's like, it's not a fair assessment. It's just newer. It came to the market later than others. That doesn't mean that it's inferior. So I'm always curious as to how we can get education, the real quality information to people who actually need it the most. But I'm always fascinated, especially thinking about Fannie Lou Hamer, thinking about you as an extension of Fannie Lou Hamer how you get that information to that person who's the nucleus in a community who can disseminate accurate information to people to help them make the best decision for them and their family so that we can actually get these kids back in school and we can actually finally meet up for
0: our bourbon. (laughs) And talk about the world. Amen, because the bourbon is needed. Yeah, I think a lot of organizations, we've had to take it upon ourselves. Like we've been sadly building with members who've had multiple people die in the household and them going and being thought leaders to other folks in either in their housing development or in the neighborhood to say, we've heard what the science has to say on this. What I can tell you is this is what it feels. This is my lived experience having lost three or four people, having to now be a primary care provider for a nephew because of this. So I'm going to roll up my sleeve and take this vaccine. Because what's been visited upon us this year, I don't wish on nobody. I think some cities and states have done that better than others. It's sad that a lesson that a lot of folks have to keep learning is we trust Black women is not just a slogan. It is absolutely a way of life. The people in our communities who folks know and have trusted for years, if they're on board, they'll bring other people on board and they'll be able to have those nuanced conversations that folks may be embarrassed to have in public about their rightful questions on this. So I'm hoping some of our governmental entities will meet to partner with institutions, to partner with trusted leaders and community. They may not be the loudest probably, chances are they'll be the quietest, but they move with a quiet authority in their communities, and it's time to make these partnerships so that we can do better.
1: Well, Afia, I can't thank you enough for starting us off what I'm calling Black Women's History Month. I just respect the work that you do. I'm so appreciative of the work that you do.
0: So what's next for you? Well, I'm so excited to be with you today, and we're really excited at Community Voices Her that we're going to be taking our Follow Black Women's Survey National, where we have women from across the country. We're hoping will join us to take this survey to answer questions about what issues matter most to them. How do they engage civically and not just by voting, but in volunteerism and to get an idea about what some things that they want to be working on in the future. So we're going to continue to organize black women and women across the scope of New York and hopefully this nation. So I'm looking forward to building with you further and really excited for all the work that you're doing and just so grateful to have you as a friend and in my life.
1: And what's the URL so our listeners can take the survey and help the cause? Sure. So folks should go
0: to our webpage at www.cvhpower.org and there'll be linked to the survey there. So that's cvhpower.org.
1: Well, I so appreciate you for helping us try and dissect what's in it for us. Thank you so much for coming on the show and promise me that you'll come back at another time.
0: Anytime. And hopefully we'll be able to do it under some better circumstances, but so excited to be with you.
1: Thank you for listening to What's In It For Us. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to podcasts at thegrio.com. The What's In It For Us podcast is brought to you by The Grio, an executive produced by Kevin Y. Brown and produced by Abdul Kadus.